On Thursday, The Hill reported a series of major Bush world policy advisors are openly endorsing Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. First point, if Bush world were actually a theme park, it would be the worst theme park ever. Among those figures, former Secretary of the Treasury Hank Paulson, former Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, and former National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft. The former Deputy Press Secretary to George W., his name is Tony Fratto, he told The Hill, quote, I think it's an easy call. I think it's really easy. Trump isn't fit for office. Laura Bush, she said months ago she'd prefer Hillary to Trump, basically. Here's the truth Bush world refuses to acknowledge. Bush world rallying around Trump, that's why Trump has succeeded thus far. See, here's the thing. All along, the media have been conflating two separate, distinct wings of the Never Trump movement. Wing one, these are the people like me who reluctantly pulled the lever for John McCain and Mitt Romney, but did so well moaning the whole time and grumbling that they were too far to the left. These are people who backed Ted Cruz in the primaries and who worry that if McCain and Romney and George W. Bush and George H.W. Bush gradually corrupted conservatism, Trump's going to do it wholesale and then he's going to add his whole toxic garbage heap to the mix. People like me, we say we're not going to vote for Hillary, but we're also not going to vote for Trump. That's one group of never Trump. Then there's wing two. These are the moderate establishment figures. And they refuse to back Trump, but not because his positions corrupt conservatism. Many of them likely would have backed Hillary over Ted Cruz, actually. These are people who refused to endorse Cruz to stop Trump in the first place because they liked Trump positions better than Cruz. Now they've got their excuse to back Hillary because Trump's so terrible. Many conservatives have been burying their annoyance for years over the Bush family's closeness with the Clinton family. We always suspected that the Republican establishment prefers this kind of oligarchic, backroom, drinking buddy, Democrat nonsense to outsider conservatives. The Bush family's relationship with the Clinton mob, that was exhibit A in the case against the Republican establishment. And that's why so many conservatives resonated to Trump smacking down the Bush family and their 2016 emissary, Jeb. It was really fun watching Trump knock Jeb through the nearest wall. I mean, go back to my podcast. You can listen to me laughing about it. It's why I tweeted early in the election cycle, I'd support Trump before I'd support Jeb. That was also before Trump revealed his lack of principle and the fact that he's kind of gross over the course of the campaign. But I'm still not sure that I would have voted for Jeb in a general just because enough dynasties. Trump was largely a backlash to the Bushes. He was a guy aggressively attacking the people, having family barbecues with the Clintons. Now, it's ironic that Trump was also having the Clintons to his wedding, but at least the Bushes hated him. And hatred drove hatred for the Bush insider crew. It drove, drove support for Trump. Cruz would have been the natural, proper response to Bush-Clinton-Trump cronyism. Trump was the wrong response. But Bush world's mobilization behind Clinton, it reminds us that Bush world trolled conservatives into getting behind Trump in the first place. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. You tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. So as always, we're going to go 15 minutes live here on Facebook. We're going to try and cram as much material into this Facebook Live as we possibly can. We won't get to the mailbag. We do that at the end of the show. So you got to go to dailywire.com to subscribe to the show. You can watch the mailbag then, and you can be part of the mailbag by sending us emails. And it is the greatest mailbag in the history of humanity. And you can be part of that if you subscribe right now at dailywire.com. Also, we are going to be talking near the end of the show about things I like and things I hate, which are some of the favorite segments of the show. So if you're just watching Facebook Live, you're getting a lot. I mean, let's face it, you're getting a lot. But you could be getting a lot more if you subscribe to Daily Wire. And if you want to just download the audio, you go to Apple, uh, you go to iTunes, or you go to SoundCloud, and you can get the podcast there. All right. So let's jump in with uh, with the worst story of the day. And this legitimately is the worst story of the day. Uh, there, is a, there is an Arab who slaughtered a 13-year-old girl in Israel. Uh, this 13-year-old girl, really pretty little girl, and is Hillel Yaffa Ariel. She is, she's 13 years old. She's an aspiring dancer. The reason this is an international story is because the Palestinian went into her bedroom, climbed into her house, and stabbed her to death in her bed. And you can see in the picture that we're showing right now, you can see the blood on her bed, right? There's the blood on her bed down on the floor. That's not the color of the carpet. That's blood all over the floor. Uh, she was stabbed multiple times. She was murdered. And the international community, they proclaimed that they're really sad about all of this. And then they said, well, you know, what really matters is where she was killed. No, not in her bedroom, not in her bedroom. It's that her bedroom was in the wrong place. It's that her bedroom was in the wrong place because her bedroom, you see, was in a place called Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba is a place near, near Hebron. It's near, it's near Hebron. And it's in the, in the so-called West Bank, Judea and Samaria. Now, for a bit of historical background for you, Judea and Samaria are the actual heart of what Israel is. Okay, Tel Aviv is not really, it's part of original Israel, but it's certainly not paramount to the Bible. Kiryat Arba is, right? It's actually mentioned, like this area is mentioned in the Bible itself. So this is historic Jewish land, but the international community 
thinks that that land ought to have no Jews on it, no Jews at all. Even if you think, by the way, that the Palestinian Arabs ought to control that land, which I don't know why you'd want terrorists controlling the land, but let's say you do. Even if you think that, you should ask yourself why it is that that land has to be Jew-free. There are lots of Arabs living inside Israel. Why does Palestinian Arab land have to be Jew-free? There are zero Jews living in the Gaza Strip right now. Right? But the idea is that she had no right to be living where she's living. So if this Arab crawls in her bedroom window and stabs her to death, and stabs her to death, then that's totally fine because of where this was. And this is not a shock. I mean, nobody should be shocked that this is how the Palestinians, the Palestinian Arabs act. Uh, they, they particularly shouldn't be shocked. I'm, I'm very getting very sick of hearing that this is all about the territory. It has nothing to do with the territory. It has nothing to do with the settlements. The same day this happened, two more Jews were stabbed in Netanyahu, which literally is on the Mediterranean coast, which is like the heart of, of Israeli territory under any settlement negotiation. In any case, the real reason that, that this is happening is radical Islam. The same reason that Turkey got bombed the other day. The same reason that France gets shot up every couple of months. The same reason 49 gay people just got shot in Orlando. The same reason that a bunch of people got shot in San Bernardino. That's why this little girl got stabbed to death. It doesn't matter, though. According to the international leftist community, she got stabbed because she was living in the wrong place because she had no right to be sleeping in her bedroom at night. That's according to the international leftist community. Within hours of her funeral, the so-called Middle East Quartet, this would be the UN evil organization, the European Union morally bankrupt organization, the United States led by the morally bankrupt Jew-hating Obama administration, and the, and, the, and the Russians, who obviously are just out for themselves and really don't care, they came out and they said, well, really what needs to happen here is Jews need to stop building bedrooms in the West Bank, right? They need to stop building bedrooms in Judea and Samaria. You want to know the real reason, gang, why Palestinian Arabs are killing people? It's radical Islam. And here's the proof. This is what Palestinian Arabs are teaching their children. This is from the Islamic Association in Khan Yunus. Okay, what you're seeing is you're seeing a bunch of Palestinian kids and they're carrying keys and carrying fake guns. And, and then this is them kidnapping. This is the, them being trained to kidnap and stab Israeli soldiers. You see, you see the kid with the knife? He's stabbing fake Israeli soldiers and by kids up playing that, right? Now this is video of these kids running out of a terror tunnel and kidnapping Jews and then murdering them. How old are these kids here, you think? Maybe five, six years old? Maybe. Four or five years old? Right? You wonder why kids are getting stabbed in their bedrooms in, in Kiryat Arba? This is why kids are getting stabbed in their bedrooms in Kiryat Arba. It has nothing to do with the location of the bedroom. It has to do with pure, unadulterated evil. That's what you're watching here. These kids throwing rocks at, at ultra or kids dressed up as ultra-Orthodox Jews who are praying, right? That's, that's what those kids are supposed to be doing. It's called shuckling, right? That's, that's where you're praying, and they're... And they're taking rocks and throwing it at, at the children. This is how they are training their small children. You tell me whether this has to do with Western civilization versus radical Islam, or the, whether this has to do with where somebody's building an extra bedroom. It's a bunch of crap. And, and by the way, this is state-sponsored. This is state-sponsored. Okay, This is sponsored by the people Israel is supposed to be negotiating with. The Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be the moderates, right? Those are the moderates Israel is supposed to be negotiating with. Their official news agency called the murderer, the guy who stabbed the 13-year-old girl, called him a martyr. Here's what the, the guy's mother said. Here's what the guy's mother said. Imagine your kid, for a second, went and stabbed a 13-year-old girl to death in her bedroom. Here's what the mother said. Quote, he was a hero. He made me proud. My son died as a martyr defending Jerusalem and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Praise be to Allah, Lord of the world. He has joined the martyrs before him. He is not better than them. Allah willing, all of them will follow this path. All the youth of Palestine, Allah be praised. Now, if the Obama administration got a hold of that quote, presumably that quote would read, my son died as, a, as an omitted, defending omitted, praise be to omitted, right? Because we can't talk about the reality, which is that we're all in the same battle here. We're all in the same battle. Now, the left refuses to acknowledge the battle anyway, right? When, when people get killed by radical Muslims in the United States, it's because, of gun, it's because of failures of gun control. When Turkey gets bombed, then it's not radical Islam. That's just an internal strike. When, when, when this stuff happens in France, then maybe it's radical Islam, but still, really, it's kind of just about Islamophobia. It's about intolerance for Muslims, and that's what drives them to go and shoot people up in a newspaper office. But there's another step of evil that suddenly attends when it comes to Jews living in Israel. It's, it's another step of evil. So they have to separate the Jews off even from the West. I mean, you remember back during the, the Charlie Hebdo attack, you remember that there were terrorists, and they went and they shot up a, a French newspaper. You remember, they went, you remember where they went from the French newspaper? They went from the French newspaper to a kosher supermarket, and to a kosher deli. And they shot up the kosher deli. And you remember, President Obama said it was random. It was random. Charlie Hebdo wasn't random, but the kosher supermarket was random. The Jews always have to be separated out from everybody else according to the left. Right? The left has never suggested, for all the crap the left has suggested, they've never suggested 
that the French have to negotiate with ISIS. They've never suggested the United States has to negotiate with ISIS, right? They've never suggested that. They've blamed it on other things, but they've never said, okay, let's open a negotiation with ISIS. They say every day that Israel ought to open a negotiation with the people who celebrate people who stabbed to death 13-year-old girls in their bedroom. Okay, this, this is the purest form of evil, and the left is attendant upon it. The left is part of it. And all that really does is, for Jews like me, it underscores the importance of the state of Israel, a place that continues to defend Jews as Jews, right? That was the original purpose of the state of Israel from a secular point of view, was a place that was going to defend Jews when they were left out there alone by the rest of the world. And once again, they're left out there alone by the rest of the world. Everybody will pay lip service to how terrible it is, and then they'll say that it really is the fault of these crazy Jews for having built their bedrooms. Right? The, the stabbings are, are, are secondary to the building of the bedroom. So that's, that's, to me, that's the biggest story of the day, uh, and it's going to be undercovered by the media because it's just not that important because it's Jews being killed, right? It's not, it's not gays being killed in Orlando or, or editors being killed in France or even people being killed in Turkey. This will be covered by virtually no one tonight. This will be covered by virtually no one because Jews are a little bit different, which is, which is sickening. Okay, so on another note, on another note, President Obama is very, very angry at Donald Trump. He's really angry at Donald Trump. And he was in Canada yesterday, and he did legitimately, I don't think we grabbed footage of it, but the world's most awkward handshake with Justin Trudeau and uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who's the, the president of, of Mexico, they, they all met together and they started kind of doing a handshake where it looked like they were doing a secret handshake to get into the, the no girls, boys only club. Um, it, was, it was either that or, or some other boys only club. But in any case, they, they, had this, uh, they had this weird handshake and then President Obama got up and spoke in front of the parliament and he decided to rip on Donald Trump. And he clearly hates Trump, clearly hates Trump, despises Trump, much more than he hates terrorists, much, much more than he hates terrorists, much more than he hates, you know, criminals. He really despises Donald Trump. And he's mad because Donald Trump claims to be a populist. Now, I wanted to find populist for a moment because people keep throwing this word around. What does it mean to be a populist? All a populist means is somebody who claims that they want the power to reside in the people. Now, the problem with the populist argument is that it's a methodology. It's not actually a politics. So you can have a populist like Bernie Sanders, who's on the left, who says, power to the people. We must have power to the people. And that means all the power to the government. Right? And you can have populists on the right, like Donald Trump, who says, well, the people of America and the people here, what we really need is we need, we need all power, and that means give me the power. So it, but populism almost inevitably ends with some sort of populist leader who does what he wants. But, Trump, but Obama's angry about this. He says that Trump isn't the real populist. I'm the real populist. I'm the real Slim Shady. So here's President Obama making that case. And that's this whole issue of populism. I, I, Maybe so I can pull up in a dictionary quickly uh, the phrase populism, but I, I'm not prepared to concede the notion that uh, some of the rhetoric that's been popping up is populist. He says that the, the only, only, only his populism is real populism. First of all, the fact that all these politicians want to fight over what populism means, populism isn't a great thing. It isn't. Populism is just basically catering to the lowest common denominator. It doesn't say anything about philosophy. Again, it's a strategy. It's not a philosophy of governance or government. It doesn't tell you what somebody's thinking. If I tell you that somebody's a populist, you don't know whether I'm talking about Trump or whether I'm talking about Bernie Sanders. So when he says that, that Trump isn't a real populist, what he really means is that Trump isn't saying things in the name of the people. I say things in the name of the people. But here's the thing. Real populists, you know, people who actually cared about democracy, for example, they wouldn't claim to speak in the name of the people. They would claim to speak in their own name, and then people either support them or they don't. Obama goes on like this, ripping Trump in a foreign country, of course, because this is what Obama does, because this is who he is. He's very upset at Donald Trump's anti-immigrant, what he calls demagoguery. We've had times throughout our history where anti-immigration sentiment is exploited by demagogues. It was directed at the Irish, it was directed at Poles and Italians, and you can go back and read what was said about those groups, and it's identical to what they're now saying about Mexicans or Guatemalans or Salvadorians or Muslims or Asians. Same stuff. They're different, they're not going to fit, they won't assimilate, they bring crime. Same arguments. You go back to the 1800s. The language is identical. But guess what? They kept coming. So we can stop it there. And they kept coming. 
they kept coming. They kept going. Okay, so I'll explain. We have to kill the live feed now. But if you want to listen to the rest and see the rest, go to dailywire.com. I'll explain why President Obama's wrong and his head is actually so far up his butt it's coming out his mouth again. I'll explain all of that if you go and subscribe at Daily Wire. Plus, we have the mailbag coming up. And we haven't even talked about Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton's meeting with Loretta Lynch on the tarmac. We haven't done good Trump, bad Trump. There's so much more to get to that you're missing because you're just watching on Facebook Live. So go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. And you can continue to watch and enjoy uh, and you can download the rest of the podcast on audio later from SoundCloud or iTunes. Okay, so President Obama says this, right? President Obama says what he says. He says that, that this is the same sort of xenophobia that we used to see. Okay, there is one difference. There is one difference. It used to be that we didn't hand people welfare benefits. So it's true. When people came here from Germany or when they came from Eastern Europe, lots of Jews, when Italians came here, there was a lot of talk about crime. There's a lot of talk about an underclass coming in. The difference was this. The types of people we were attracting then were people who were seeking freedom and not looking for a handout from the government. They weren't in a ten- they weren't in net cost because they didn't cost anything. They came in and it wasn't anybody's job to take care of them. It was their job to make a life for themselves. And it, it, go watch a, a film called Brooklyn, which is it's, it's a pretty good film. And it's about a, an Irish immigrant coming over to the United States. And you'll see this is exactly what it's about. Basically, she comes over to the United States and she gets help from her from her basically her family and her church to find a job, and they help integrate her into the society. There's no, at no point in the film does she go to the government office looking for a check. Once you create a system with the government office where people are looking for a check, then the culture of the people coming over actually matters a lot more. Because before, you were having, a, it's a different magnet drawing a different type of people. Right? It's, a different, it's a different system that draws a different type of immigrant. And if people don't integrate into the prevailing society, they're never going to be able to get a job. If you sit apart from the rest of the society, Believing in a culture that doesn't exist here, you're going to have a problem getting a job and living and staying and working. And so there had to be an integration just by force of of capitalism. Well, that no longer exists. That's the difference between the so-called anti-immigrant demagoguery of the 1870s, kind of the know-nothing demagoguery of the 1860s, and the the so-called anti-immigrant demagoguery of Donald Trump. I'm not anti-immigrant, by the way. I'm, I'm a full Milton Friedman libertarian when it comes to immigration, so long as there's not a welfare state. If there is a welfare state, now you do have to pick and choose the people who come in, obviously. But this is the sort of demagoguery in which Obama participates, this populist leftism. And I think it's important to mention here that the populist leftism that he's pushing is still a populism that puts himself at the head of, of, a, of a big government. He Give him all the power, everything is fine. He just doesn't like the idea that Trump is proposing give Trump all the power and everything is fine. Now, speaking of giving people all the power and everything is fine, Hillary Clinton continues to be wildly corrupt. Now, it's, it's obvious she's a felon. She is. She's a felon. And the reason we know this is because if you have classified material on a private server, you are a felon. She was Secretary of State. If all her email was going to a private server, she had to have classified material on there. She's the Secretary of State. Thus, she is a felon. Duh. Okay, my wife worked at the VA when she was, when she was in medical school. And one of the things she did at the VA, she had to take training as to what sort of information she was allowed to take in and out of the building because of HIPAA, because of, because of federal law. If she had accidentally taken out medical records from the building and put them in her car, that would be a crime, right, to do that. Now, imagine that she had set up a private server and downloaded all of the HIPAA records there. Would that be a crime? You bet your butt it would be a crime, right? This is, this is a crime. But in order to make sure that nothing criminal happens here, Loretta Lynch this is, this is discovered by a local media outlet in Phoenix. Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General of the United States, she meets with Bill Clinton on the tarmac in the middle of nowhere at this little airbase in, in Phoenix. And the media spot her there. And she goes and she meets with Bill Clinton. Now, think about how corrupt this is. Think about how insanely corrupt this is. Right? You've got Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, and they're conspiring to do stuff. And we know that. We know that, that the Clinton Foundation was working with Hillary while she was at the State Department. Bill was the head of the Clinton Foundation. Hillary was the head of the State Department. We know there were corrupt bargains between them. We know that there was a slush fund at the Clinton Foundation. People who were giving money to the Clinton Foundation were getting special benefits from the Hillary Clinton State Department. We know all that. Now you have Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and she's showing up on the tarmac and meeting privately with no cameras and no media and no one else there with Bill Clinton. So Loretta Lynch says, of course, that this is all totally harmless. Here's what Loretta Lynch had to say about it. General Loretta Lynch met with former President Bill Clinton earlier this week. So, Paula, how did this meeting happen? We just got some tape of Lynch explaining uh, this today. Let's just play a little bit of that. Well, I did see the president uh, at the Phoenix airport the other night as I was landing. He was headed out. Uh, He did come over and say hello and speak to my husband and myself and 
um, talk about his grandchildren and his travels and and things like that. So that was the extent of that. And no discussions were held in any cases or anything of that. And he didn't raise anything uh, about that either. Okay, so he didn't, it was just a thought. We were just meeting, you know, just saying hello. You know, it was nothing. It was totally nothing. And the media are so credulous. That, oh, yeah, probably nothing happened here. Probably nothing happened. They're like best friends. Okay, they met like one time, ever. Okay, they, they, she wasn't at, their, at Chelsea's wedding. Like, they don't know each other. They just happened to meet. Like, how does that work? They're just... They just happen to be at the same airbase, and she's just walking around the tarmac for no reason. And Bill looks out the window and goes, hey, look, it's Loretta. Let's get her up here. And then Loretta, oh, hi, Bill. I've been missing you. Like, what? how does that even work? Like, the windows don't open on these planes, right? So, I mean, it's not even like he can roll down the window and say, hey, there, cutie, come on up. He can't even do that, right? So, clearly, this, this is all a bunch of, of crap. And the media is treating it like, no big deal. It's nothing. This is just nothing. It's not a big deal. It's like the scene from, from Godfather 1. You remember there's a scene in Godfather 1, a very famous scene where Michael goes to deal with, uh, with so what's the name of, what's the, name of the, the guy he ends up shooting in the, in the restaurant? I can't remember the name of the guy he ends up shooting in the restaurant. It's, in any case, he goes to meet with, with uh, he's, he's trying to bargain with the guy who just tried to kill his father. And, they, and they're both Italian, and they're both Sicilian. And he's, and he's meeting over, over dinner with this guy. And he brings along McCluskey. McCluskey's the cop. Right? And McCluskey's on the payroll. So McCluskey's sitting here, and Michael's sitting here, and and the other guy is sitting across from him, and they're and they're speaking. They're just talking about how's your father? Oh, everything's good. How are you doing? Everything is fine. And and then at a certain point, the other guy turns to the cop who's on his payroll, right? The, the, he turns to the the cop who's on his payroll, and he says to him, "You know, me and Michael, we're going to speak Italian now." And and is it Salerno, the the, the name of the guy? I'm, I'm trying. It's killing me that I that I, I'm. It's killing me that I that I can't remember the name of the guy who's who's the the villain. I mean, Salazzo, Salazzo. That's who it is. Salazzo. Thank you. So Salazzo is is sitting on the other side. Salazzo turns to McCluskey and he says, "Me and Michael, we're going to talk Italian now." And McCluskey goes, "Sounds good to me. Go ahead." And he's sitting there with the police uniform on, and they're, they're talking to each other, and they're saying what they want to say, and and it's not even translated. So you, unless you speak Italian, you don't know what they're saying. And that's the media here. Right, Bill, Loretta Lynch, Obama, Bill—they—they just—they turn to the media and they go, they go, me and me and Loretta, we're going to speak a little Italian here. We're going to speak a little Italian, and the media goes, okay, do what you need to do. And that's that's what's going on here. The the media are refusing to acknowledge the obvious, which is they're not getting together to talk about their grandchildren. Come on, come on, Bill, Bill has more grandchildren than he's even willing to talk about. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the idea that Bill's calling her on board saying, yeah, Loretta, I was just hanging out with Charlotte the other day and she was so cutie. I mean, she's, she's so cute. She's the only cutie I ever haven't wanted to have sex with. It's amazing. <laughs> like the idea that that's the conversation and not, well, hi there, Loretta. You know, my wife's running for president and, you know, we, we know that you're not going to indict her or anything. Well, we think that maybe there might be a slot for you opening up in the next administration. Like th that that's not the conversation. The idea that's not the conversation, that it was just all it was just all friendly talk. They're just getting together to hang out because they're best buds and they were sharing a cigar and a beer. What kind of garbage? What kind of crap? Even the Democrats, by the way, know that this looks awkward. Senator, I think it's Chris Coons from Delaware, he says that this is he says that this this was probably a bad idea. <laughs> what do you think about the impropriety or the appearance of that? Well, Allison, I've just heard about this this morning. My impression of the meeting uh, was that the attorney general was coming into Phoenix to give a speech about community policing uh, and that the former president asked to talk to her briefly about community policing. Uh, I do I do agree with you that it doesn't send the right signal. Um, I am impressed with Attorney General Loretta Lynch, uh, the work that she's done in combating violent crime and in leading mm -hmm. the Department of Justice. And she has generally shown excellent judgment uh, and strong leadership of the department. And I'm convinced that she is an independent attorney general. Uh, but I do think said, that this meeting sends the wrong signal. And I don't I don't think it sends the right signal. I think she should have steered clear even of a brief, casual social meeting with the former president. She should have said, no, thank you. I'm not available to meet right now. I think she should have said, look, I recognize you have a, a long record of leadership on fighting crime, but this is not the time for us to have that conversation. After the election's over, I'd welcome your advice in him. Super duper duper corrupt. Super corrupt. Right. And, and, and it is. This, this all is super corrupt. I love when he says that, that she's not corrupt. She's really doing hard work. Loretta Lynch is the lady who's used the Department of Justice to threaten prosecution against people who participate in anti-Islamic speech. Loretta Lynch is the lady who's used the Department of Justice to crack down on 
private businesses as well as police departments that have nothing to do. Police departments that have nothing to do with racism. She's used the, the DOJ to crack down. She's absolutely corrupt from beginning to end. Andrew Clavin calls her sinister. That's a really kind word for Loretta Lynch. Uh, and the idea that she's meeting with Bill just out of the goodness of her heart, absolute horse pucky, absolute nonsense. Well, but, but don't worry, the media won't focus on any of that. And, and they also won't focus on the fact that the, that the left refuses to acknowledge real dangers to the country. Right? They just say, okay, so Hillary is corrupt, whatever. Okay, so they're real dangers to the country, whatever. There's a DHS whistleblower, Department of Homeland Security whistleblower, and his name is Philip Haney, and he's testifying on the Hill yesterday. Listen to what he says about what the federal government has been doing to cover up for terrorism, and then we'll talk about how the left has responded to all of this. Between these two dates, 2008 and 2016, came what I call the first great purge. When I was ordered by the Department of Homeland Security headquarters to modify a euphemism, removing all linking information out of approximately 820 text subject records in our law enforcement system that almost exclusively had to do with Muslim Brotherhood Network here in the United States. I was told to remove all unauthorized references to terrorism, that I was no longer allowed to do what are called memorandums of information received, what we call MOIRs, no more text records, no more research, and no more special treatment from the agency. But during that time, hundreds of law enforcement actions had been taken in the three-year period when those 820-plus records were still in the law enforcement system. At exactly the same time, a controversial inaugural meeting took place on January 27th and 28th, 2010 between American Muslim leaders and the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano, which was hosted by the Department of Homeland Security Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. It was controversial because several of the individuals attended the invitation-only conference in D.C. were known affiliates of at least two of the same Muslim Brotherhood front groups that had just been named as unindicted co-conspirators in the largest terrorism trial in the history of the United States. Stop it there. Haney, Haney, it's difficult to listen to him because he's very boring, but what he's saying is that the Department of Homeland Security basically wiped out of its records affiliations with terrorist groups, including the Muslim Brotherhood, for people under investigation, and then proceeded to even meet with people who had those affiliations in their civil rights division. Right? That's what he's saying. So is the left worried about you know, Hillary risking national security? Are they worried about the cover-up from the federal government? Are they worried about terrorism? Are they worried about radical Islamism? No, of course not. They're worried about gun control. So you got all these celebrities now, and all these celebrities get together to read the names of the Orlando victims. They're not doing it because they want Islamic jihad fought. They're doing it because they want gun control, of course. John Carlos Nieves Rodriguez, 27 years old. John started working at McDonald's at age 15 to help support his family and was recently made the manager of a check-cashing store. He purchased his first home this spring so that his mother could live there too. He loved to escape to the beach, though his best friend called him a big teddy bear who was happy when everyone depended on him. Okay, so we can stop it. I mean, it it goes on like this for a while. Stanley, I'm a And and they go through all the victims. It's fine to remember the victims. I don't remember them doing the same thing after terrorist attacks that were clearly terrorist attacks. Did they do this after San Bernardino? I missed it. Did they do this? Have have they been doing this after the Chattanooga shootings of the of the military members? No, they they never do it. They don't do it when it's when when they the issue is radical Islam. They don't do it. They should be doing it for all the victims. Right? They should be doing it for all the victims. But the only time I've ever seen the left treat victims as victims is when they're trying to push gun control or when they're trying to ban the Confederate flag. And they did this sort of stuff for for the for the shooting in Charleston. They should be doing it when they're ripping against Islamic radicalism. But they don't care about any of that stuff. They don't. And they don't care about the corruption. And they don't care about the fact the Obama administration doesn't care about that stuff. They don't care about any of that. And Whoopi Goldberg makes that clear. The Benghazi report comes out earlier this week. Says that Hillary literally went to sleep, basically, while people were under fire. And that the big debate in the White House was, do we spin this so that it's about a YouTube video? Or do we not spin it so that it's about a YouTube video? And also, should our soldiers wear a uniform if they go in and save our guys? Let's dither around for eight hours and do nothing. But here's Whoopi Goldberg summing up the thoughts of the left on all this stuff. I mean, this is stomach-churning, folks. Here's Whoopi Goldberg on The View, the repository of all human stupidity, a place where the total grand combined IQ of all the people on the panel is lower than than my weight with a couple of decimal points moved over. Here's, Here's Whoopi Goldberg, one of the stupidest people in American politics. 
I mean, this is part of the problem. When people, you know, talk about, oh, she's not trustworthy, it's because people have done this. She sat with the Republicans. She sat with everybody she was supposed to sit to. She's talked about everything. She didn't do anything. Walk away. Get something new. We're bored with it. But, you know, yeah. we're, we're bored. We're it's not as we're voting. We it's done. We're bored. We're bored. We don't want to watch it. We're bored. You're bored? I don't care. You're bored? I'll tell you who wasn't bored. The people who died there. I'll tell you who's not going to be bored. All the people who are going to die because people like you don't care. The people who aren't, they're not going to be bored. They're going to be dead. Right? Because, because the left refuses to acknowledge the problem, wants to put in power a lady who has no capacity for non-corruption, a lady who puts her own personal self-aggrandizement and power above the lives of other fellow Americans who are in harm's way. And you're bored with it? You're bored with it. What, you got to go make a sequel to Ghost? Well, what, what do you got that's going on that's so important? You got to sit there jabbering about the latest Kim Kardashian butt shot on The View? That's the, you're, you're too bored to, to deal with it? You're too bored to deal with the fact that your chosen candidate is a corrupt felon? You're too bored to deal with that? That she was willing to lie to the families of the people who were murdered? Sorry for bored. Sorry for bored. But they all are bored. They're all bored. The media's bored. Here's a CNN reporter explaining that this whole terrorism thing is just getting in the way of what we really ought to be talking about. And what we really ought to be talking about is, is climate change. To think that virtually every time we go on one of these foreign trips where the White House wants to emphasize something else, I mean, here they really want to, want to be focusing on North America and, and climate change. Um, again, terrorism has overshadowed some of those subjects. And we know that the president's going to be getting more questions about this and those abilities of ISIS to launch these attacks throughout the day. I mean, it's just too bad. Terrorism is just overshadowing this stuff. We really ought to war worry about whether the sea levels are going to rise a foot in 100 years. That's, that's really what we ought to be worrying about right now. Not about this whole terrorism shtick. It really is just annoying. I wish that people would just put that aside. It would be really nice if they would just, you know, get, get onto the real issues, like, like the weather. <clears throat> Meanwhile, this, this you would imagine would be ripe, fertile ground for Donald Trump to make some moves, right? This is, so there's a new poll out today from Rasmussen shows Trump up four. Unfortunately, there are two other polls, a poll that shows Trump down 10 to Hillary, 42 to 32, which, by the way, that statistic's amazing. That she only has 42%, and she's still beating him by 10 in the Reuters tracking poll. Where are the other 26% of the American population? They all go hang themselves? Like, what are they doing? Right? It's, it appears to me that the other 26% are looking and saying, okay, we've got Trump who's a crap show and Hillary who's a crap show. We don't like either of them, so we're just not going to tell you who we're voting for, right? But the bottom line is that, that you would imagine Trump should be making some moves. And Trump says some things that are worthy of saying. Again, again, as always, every single day. See, this is the thing about the, this particular feature of the Ben Shapiro show, this new and, and really... I think, consistent feature of the Ben Shapiro show. Every single day, there's good Trump and bad Trump. There's no day that goes by where it's just good Trump. There's no day that goes by that it's just bad Trump. Right? It's almost always there's some good Trump and there's always some bad Trump. So it's time for some good Trump, bad Trump. Here is the good Trump. Okay, so good Trump. Donald Trump talked yesterday about Syrian refugees being allowed into Europe. He said this on Bill O'Reilly's show, and, and this is exactly right. If he made this the sole focus of his campaign, gang, he would be in good shape. If he actually made this the sole focus, after everything that I've just said, the corruption, the felonious backroom dealing, the, the fact that the left is totally bored and willing to, willing to allow Westerners to be killed, whether they're Jews in Israel or whether they're gays in, in Orlando, this would be where Trump can make his hay. So here's Trump talking about ISIS. The fact that they seem to have these victories, I don't know if you call that a victory, but it's a victory. It's perceived as a victory. You have through the Internet, they're taking our youth and the youth from other countries all over the world, and they're joining ISIS. The youth thinks it's wonderful because they see victory. You know, it's being portrayed that, it's as a psychological they are beating play. the United States. All right, now. And people are joining ISIS because of that. Hillary now, you Clinton, have to knock them hard. you got to beat the hell out of them, frankly. Hillary Clinton's going to have to get tougher on terrorism, and she is. And, and She'll never get tougher. She's not tough enough. She'll I, never I, get she's going to get tougher, at she's least rhetorically on terrorism. She's going to have to because President Obama's policy of containment has failed. Everybody in the world knows it's I don't fair. see it happening with her. She's not going to get tougher. It started under her. It was a little group of people. It could have been wiped out quickly and effectively then. Now it's a very large group of people, and it's only getting bigger. And if she gets in, it'll be massive, and we won't even have a country anymore. We're going to be afraid to walk outside. All right. Now we're going to hold Mr. Trump over. And, and Bill, remember one other thing. They're letting tens of thousands of people come in from Syria and nobody knows who these people are. All right, well, we went and through that a lot already. of those people are ISIS. Okay. A lot of these people are ISIS. I'm not Okay, what he's saying right there, he got a lot of flack for that last line. A lot of these people are ISIS. Polls show that 13% of Syrian refugees say they have sympathies with ISIS. So this is good Trump, right? What Trump is saying here is exactly right. 
If I thought he actually took the issue seriously, it would make me feel a little bit better about, about Trump. I don't think that he takes it particularly seriously. I think he's an ad hoc guy and he says what comes to mind. But I think that as soon as it's out of his head, it's out of his head. But here, this is good Trump, right? This is this is the Trump that says we got to take these issues seriously. And then naturally, because of today ending in why there's some bad Trump. So so Trump also was talking more about about free trade yesterday. One of the things that's very irritating to me politically, and it's just it's very hard for me on politics. I do think that there are smart things and stupid things in politics. I think there are true things and false things in politics. And I think that politicians will basically lie to you in order to get you to do what they want you to do. I think right now there's a there's a movement by the left and by the right, really by the left, because Trump is of the left, on trade, that to, to rip on free trade. And we talked for 20 minutes yesterday about Trump's anti-free trade policies. Both Trump and Hillary Clinton are lying to you about, about free trade. Here is Donald Trump lying to you about free trade yesterday. You go down the line and you look at what we've accomplished together, and I said to myself, why would the U.S. Chamber of Commerce criticize what I'm saying? Because here's what I'm saying. Very simple. I'm all for free trade. It's fine. But I want Carl Icahn negotiating for me. I want, I want the greatest business people negotiating my deals, not hacks. Okay. But I'm all for free trade. But here's what. Because, you know, the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is totally controlled by the special interest groups, folks, just so you understand it. And there are special interests that want to have the deals that they want to have. They want to have TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the worst deals, it'll be the worst deal since NAFTA. No, it'll be the worst, it'll drain the rest of your businesses out of Maine, believe me. It'll okay, be so, the worst I mean, deal he's just going on like this, going on NAFTA. like this. It's all nonsense what he's saying. I mean, the idea that NAFTA killed American economics is, is just silliness. It's not true in any way. We read the statistics yesterday. It's not true. And Charles Krauthammer gets this right. He says, we've now reached this point where both parties are against free trade. Well, what he saw for the Republican primaries is that the traditional ideology, free trade, more reasonable, more open on borders, was something that everybody else was supporting. And he saw a real opening, and he won the nomination, essentially on that message. Question is, how will it play in the country? I think what's most interesting is the fact that if the Republicans are now banning free trade, for the first time ever in our memory, we're having a presidential campaign where neither side is for free trade, which I think bodes really badly for our allies abroad, the Australians, the Canadians, the Mexicans. Imagine the Mexicans looking at the cancellation of NAFTA, what effect it would have on them. They're looking at a race where the country, with both parties, is now turning against free trade. They had always assumed the United States would be the one country that would rise above the most narrow economic nationalism and save the idea of free trade. That's not going to be true come January 2017. And that will change the whole international landscape. Okay, so what, what Krauthammer there is saying is true, although I will say that when he says we'd rise above the most narrow economic nationalism, economic nationalism would require free trade, as I said yesterday. If you were actually an economic nationalist and you wanted America to be economically strong, you wouldn't fight free trade. But he's right. Basically, everybody is lying to you in order to get ahead. And that's what's so disappointing about this election. One final note on, on the whole Trump of everything. Mike Lee, who's the senator from Utah, where Trump is now running head, neck and neck with Hillary. There's a new poll out, by the way, in Iowa. came out moments ago. Shows Trump down 48-34 in Iowa. <sighs> Bloodbath. Here is Steve Malsberg questioning Mike Lee about why is it that you won't back Trump? And listen to Lee's answer. I just don't understand why you're not out there you know, trumpeting Trump. Hey, hey, look, Steve, I get it. You want me to endorse Trump. Well, you I don't understand why you're not really. really well. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we can get into that if you want. I mean, we can get into the fact that he accused my best friend's father of conspiring to kill JFK. We can go through the fact that uh, he's made some statements that some have identified correctly as religiously intolerant. We can get into the fact that he's wildly unpopular in my state in part because my state consists of people who are members of a religious minority church, a people who were ordered exterminated by the governor of Missouri in 1838, and statements like that make them nervous. Now, look, these things are not uh, something that I couldn't get over if I heard the right things out of them. But if, if you want to go to why it is I have concerns, I can, I can go on if you'd like. Wow. Um, I'm, I hope I can get over these concerns. I hope Mr. Trump can help me identify them. But don't sit here and tell me, Steve, that I have no reason 
to be concerned about Donald Trump. And Lee is exactly right. And this is, this is the problem with this election. Hillary is so awful. I mean, I can't say it enough times. Hillary is so awful. Awful. She's a felon. She doesn't believe in any of the right things. She's going to get people killed. All of this is true. And Trump, all he has to do is make people comfortable, and he's utterly incapable of doing it. He's utterly incapable of doing it. Okay, time for some quick things I like, things I hate, and mailbag, because we have a clock that means nothing. So, uh, so quick things that I like. Well, first, sorry, quick side note. Just a, 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 This one goes out to, this, this note of love goes out to Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, who apparently are a couple. Really. Like, they, they, page six on New York Post is now reporting that Mika and Joe, Mika's getting divorced, I guess, after 23 years to be with Joe. It's a true romance. I guess after they both broke up with Trump, they, they have a rebound relationship. But here, Joe and Mika, apparently today, they, they kind of were flirting with each other on the air because this is our media now, and it makes you want to just hang yourself. So here's what it looked like. Biggest All two right. days, like since Gordon Gecko roamed the, the, the world with those huge cell phones. That's Sorry. great. Can I get to the lead story? By now? the way, there's there's there are a lot of lead stories today, but why don't we start with the Trump lead story? I will finish story. the sentence and start with politics. <laughs> a new poll in the presidential race shows the growing worry in the GOP about Donald Trump's struggle. Okay, so that's it. Well, there are a lot of lead stories today, oh, aren't there? <sighs> During the break. Oh. Okay, so. <laughs> All right, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things I like, we're finishing up with pre-Hays Code films. Um, Pre-Hays Code films include, the Hays Code was from 1933 to 1960. To reiterate, as we've said every day this week, the Hollywood imposed on itself a voluntary standard for how movies were going to go. And, uh, and before that, the movies were very risque. They were, they were very edgy. And one of the, the, some of the people who were stars that were hurt by the, by the Hays Code were the Marx Brothers. A lot of their best material happened before the happened before the Hayes Code. The Marx Brothers, if you go back and watch their films, they're quite brilliant. I mean, a, a lot of their sketches are just genius. They're, they're still funny today. Um, it, it, very clever, very funny. So here's the, probably the most famous film, Duck Soup, uh, with, uh, and you'll see there's Groucho Marx. Oh, Your Excellency, I must speak to you. I'll see you at the theater tonight. I'll hold your seat till you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Hello? Hello, yes? No, he's not in yet. All right, but goodbye. I was for you again. I wonder what ever became of me. I should have been back here a long time ago. They got drunk. We got drunk. All got killed So it, 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 it is funny. The, the, the funny bits are not there, but you'll see the funny bits. Uh, and uh, that one's great. They're, a Night at the Opera is fantastic. They have, they have a lot of really good mil- movies. Uh, the, Groucho Marx wrote a, wrote a uh, actually Harpo, Harpo Marx, right, who never speaks. He's, he's mute in the movies. Uh, if he wrote a fantastic book called Harpo Speaks that you might be able to get on Amazon. It's still very funny, really, really funny book, and a lot of gossip in it, in there, and it's 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 a good book. Okay, so because it's a because it's a Thursday and we're near the end of the week, uh, the other thing I like is I'm do, I've been doing sort of a Bible segment at the end of the week. So this is from this week's this week's parsha. This week's parsha, the parsha is a Torah portion that, that Jews read every week throughout the whole year. We get through the entire Bible by reading a portion every week. Uh, this week it's uh, it's from Numbers, from the book of Numbers. Uh, and uh, the book of Numbers 14, 18 through 20. So this, th- those aren't the only verses, but this is the ones we're quoting right now. So th- this week's Parsha is, shal- is Parsha Shlach. Uh, this, is the pa- this is the portion of the Torah, the portion of the Old Testament, in which the Jews are told by Moses, go ahead and spy out the land. They come back. They say, we can't do this. No way, we, we can't handle this. And God gets angry, and he says, okay, well, then this entire generation is going to die out in the desert, and then we'll replace them with, with a new generation of Jews, and those are going to be the people who, who go in. And there's one point there where God says to Moses, God, these people are so irritating. They're so irritating. I'm just going to wipe them all out and I'll make a new nation out of you, right? You and your kids. And Moses, because he's humble and because he, even though he's been really put to the metal by, by, the, by the Jews throughout the, throughout the Torah, I mean, they're constantly complaining. They just whine all the time, sort of like my show. And the, but the God, he, he finally says to God, don't do that. If you do that, people are going to say, well, God promised to get the Jews out and bring them to Israel, and then he didn't do it, so God doesn't keep his promises. So here is, so here is what Moses says to God to get him to change his mind, basically. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and abundantly kind, forgiving iniquity and transgression, who cleanses some and does not cleanse others, who visit the iniquities of parents on children, even to the third and fourth generations. Please forgive the iniquity of this nation in accordance with your abounding kindness as you have borne this people from Egypt until now. And God says, I've forgiven them in accordance with your word. This formulation right here, Jews say this a lot right around Yom Kippur, right around the, the Day of Atonement. We say this particular thing a lot. 
and uh, and this formula. So what's so special about this formula? So what's special about this formula, as you'll notice, is that it doesn't just say God gives us what we want. It doesn't say you just say God is kind. It says God is just and God is kind. And we recognize that if God were just just, we would die. And we recognize that if God were just kind, we would kill each other, right? Because if God just let us alone to do what we want to do, we'd kill each other. So God is just and God is kind. He has to make exceptions to his own rules. My favorite phrase of this, actually, I think is, is something people misread a little bit. The part where it says, he visits the iniquity of parents on children, even the third and fourth generation. And people have questioned this for millennia. Well, why is that a good thing, right? I mean, why are you guilty for what your parents did? I actually don't think that this is normative, meaning I don't think that this is like God is saying this is what I'm supposed to do, right? I don't think it's Moses saying this is what God is supposed to do. I think that what Moses is saying is this is how the system works. The system works this way. And we all know this from our personal lives, right? How your grandparents are, how your parents are, that impacts you. It's going to impact your kids. It's going to impact their kids. I see it in, in myself, right? I can see how my grandparents impacted my parents who impact me, who impact how I raise my kids. The bad things that they do carry three or four generations. But there's another version of this in the Bible where it says God remembers kindnesses down to the thousandth generation. And that's the kindness. So the justice is that the things you do have an impact on future generations. The kindness is that God relieves you of those things and remembers all the good things that you do down to the thousandth generation. Okay, now time for a couple of quick things that I hate. And then we still have the mailbag. So, I mean, we've blown through the clock and, you know, it's, it's over, gang. No one cares. Okay, so things that I hate. Uh, Mathis mentioned this to me yesterday and couldn't believe that I hadn't done it yet, so we're going to do it now. Caitlyn Jenner was on the cover of Sports Illustrated looking just smoking hot. And there is there is Caitlyn Jenner, who is in fact a dude with grown-out hair and uh, and a boob job and still with all of his male appendages down below. That's, that's what Caitlyn Jenner is. And that's relevant only because they're pretending that Caitlyn Jenner is a woman, and so he is thus a woman with a penis. Um, and wearing his gold medals. And they say, oh... As you know her now, Bruce Jenner, 40 years after Montreal. Okay, Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn shouldn't be wearing those medals because woman Caitlyn did not win those medals, right? Male Bruce won those medals. Bruce won the medals. Caitlyn would not have been allowed to participate, presumably competing against women, and after the hormone therapy would not be winning against men. So, but this is, this is the whole new civil rights frontier for the left. And what's so damaging about this is that the myth that men can turn into women and women can turn into men, it confuses kids particularly. And they're, they're pushing it into every aspect of culture. They have a transgender character in Finding Dory now. They're trying to tell kids that you can choose your own gender, which is absolute bunk. And, it's, and, and confused kids end up suicidal. Okay, they do. There's a reason that the suicidality rate, pre, post-op, doesn't matter, well above 40% for, for people in the, in the so-called transgender community. But the mainstreaming of this and the, and the suggestion that people like me who say, okay, this is, this, is a person, this is a person I feel terrible for, this is not a woman. People like me, it's our fault if bad things happen to Caitlyn Jenner. No, the bad thing already happened to Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner is mentally ill, and this is a terrible, terrible thing, and they're celebrating a terrible thing. This is a person who had an eight-hour surgery on his face, woke up crying and saying, what did I do? So what did they do? They called the psychiatrist to come in and explain, no, it's perfectly normal to feel, to feel bad about them doing an eight-hour surgery, but it'll be fine, but it'll be fine. I, I am not sure this is going to end well. Okay, other, other thing that I hate. So this morning, my co-host in the morning show, Alicia Krause, she brings up this Kickstarter for this thing called Life. And what exactly is Life? Life is apparently a, a magnet. It's like a floating plant. Does this play? Or is this just a picture? About a year ago, I began exploring these concepts of levitating plants. And what's so cool about magnetism is a force that we we can't see, but we can feel. We're levitating the plant from the ground in midair. Okay, so and she says she says you want to see the coolest so thing in the world. It's the coolest thing that you've ever seen. And she shows me this. I'm like, okay, I guess it's kind of cool. This thing they asked for eighty thousand dollars raise on Kickstarter. They were given three hundred twenty thousand dollars by people. And the only reason I can imagine that this is the case. Is because people don't, is because as the insane clown posse says, I mean, the, we can listen to the genius of the insane clown posse explain it. Water, fire, air, and dirt. Fucking magnets, how do they work? And I don't want to <laughs> talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfucking and getting me pissed. So that, that's, I think, the, the sentiment behind the addiction to these, these magnets. I had a co-host, this, my other co-host, who's a lefty, which presumes that he's kind of dumb. He, uh, he, he immediately said, 
how does it work? I mean, are they like forcing the magnets together or like what is the ma- if if they take the magnets away, will it fall? I'm like, yes, yes, it will. You are stupid. Okay, this is how magnets work. Congratulations. Folks, it's fine. You want to spend money, $189 apparently for two of these things? Like, I like magnets too. They're cool. Yay. But come on. Okay, it's just, they're just magnets. Okay, time for a couple of entries from the mailbag. And we'll run through them pretty quickly. Lindsay is learning by now not to give me too many entries so that we don't go on too long with the mailbag. Okay, Seth writes, recently a friend of mine asked who I was voting for. We both responded with definitely not Hillary because he and I still believe in preserving America's founding constitutional rights. However, then I then followed with, but I don't think I can compromise or rationalize my principles and cast a vote for Trump either. At this point, I'm closer to casting a vote for Gary Johnson or just sitting this one out. My friend seemed shocked by this. He said, anything other than a vote for Trump is a vote for Hillary. My question to you is, does that last statement is anything other than a vote for Trump is a vote for Hillary idea hold any weight in this election at all? Thank you. Yeah, it holds some weight. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that it's fully true. I mean, by the same logic, any vote that's not for Hillary is a vote for Trump. You know, if this is it is annoying when people say a vote for a vote for uh, a vote not for either is a vote for Hillary. No, it's a vote for neither. Right. If it were a tie ball game and you were the last deciding vote, and you didn't vote. It would remain a tie ball game. You wouldn't be throwing the election to Hillary. But that said, as I've said many, many times and will continue to say, I understand if you want to vote for Trump just to stop Hillary. I get it. I get it. I may disagree. The reason that I disagree is because my view is that you're corrupting your principles in order to vote for a guy who's number one going to lose, and number two, even if he wins, is then going to corrupt the future of conservatism and turn it into European far-right nationalism, and it's going to be very difficult for the conservative movement to recover from the leadership of somebody like Trump, particularly when conservatives fall in line and tell each other to shut up about all of the terrible things that he does and says and all of the principles that, that he undermines. For example, Stephen Moore is a really good economist. Stephen Moore, a free trader, he's basically gone silent now, and he's trying to pretend that Donald Trump isn't anti-free trade. He is anti-free trade. And I love Stephen Moore, but he's anti-free trade. I mean, you can't do that. Okay. Justin writes, I agree. I think we agree conservatives need to stand up to the left and stop allowing them to set the moral framework of the national conversation. Taking that to the alt-right, whose primary goal is to usurp our movement, should they be confronted or ignored? Will their right-wing version of SJW politics defeat itself by virtue of its lunacy? Or do we need to shift focus to deal with this internal problem? I mean, as you know, I've been confronting this head-on. I think it's a mistake not to confront it head-on. I think that people need to be informed because people are going to ruin their lives over this. There really will be young people who fall into the alt-right trap where they think that they're doing some great good for the universe by shouting cuck at people or by using the N-word in chat rooms. And then they're going to find out that not only did they not do their movement any good, not only did they not break the stranglehold of the SJWs, but they actually are going to be targeted and ruined by the SJWs for saying things that are pretty much indefensible. The N-word is pretty indefensible. I still haven't heard from, for example, Milo Yiannopoulos, who's a big alt-right guy. I still haven't heard from Milo use the N-word. He says that he doesn't, he's not bothered if anybody else uses it, presumably. But why doesn't Milo use it? If Milo's so gutsy, why doesn't Milo just use the N-word? I mean, if he wants to violate taboos and destroy the social justice control of language, why doesn't Milo use the N-word? And the answer is because Milo knows it's stupid to do so. Milo knows it's a career under to do so. That's why Milo doesn't do it. But he's happy for other people to do it. And that's, that's what I find so kind of gross about this, this whole thing. You're not fighting political correctness by saying things that are just vile. You fight political correctness by fighting political correctness. And Matt says, hi, Ben. You talked about how tariffs are bad for the economy, which I agree with. But if it would mean an elimination of the income tax in America, would you support going back to a system where virtually 100% of federal funding comes from tariffs and the IRS keeps their grubby fingers off our paychecks? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, that's not the choice before us. I, I think that if we were to talk about eliminating the income tax versus the sort of protectionism that would pay for our current budget, no. If we're talking about the sort of tariffs that prevailed at the beginning of the republic versus the income tax, absolutely. I mean, those were pretty low tariffs. It depends on the level of tariffs, in other words. If you're talking about a full protectionism versus 40% income tax, then no, because full protectionism destroys your economy. But this is really a mathematical calculation, not a moral one, since both of these things are bad. The income tax is bad and tariffs are bad. If you're going to have any sort of tax at all to raise money for the federal government, my view is that the only real tax that's, that's fair is a tax maybe on consumption and only for purposes of, of how it's spent. The, purpose of the, the, the means of the tax is less important to me than, than the spending that arises from the tax. The reason income taxes are so high is because we have a welfare state. Get rid of the welfare state. You won't need all these tax dollars. One of the things I think is so stupid about how Republicans talk about taxes is when they say things like, and George Gilder makes this point, when they say things like, you know, we really have to, we re- the Laffer curve. If we just lower tax rates, we'll get more government revenue. I don't want more government revenue. If government revenue lowers, that's fine with me. So we cut. 
That's the point. I want the government cut. That's one of the things I like. Okay, Ricardo writes, how important do you think minority votes will be in this election? Can Republicans reach minorities with Trump as the nominee? No, Republicans are not going to reach minority votes. They're not going to reach majority votes with Trump as, as the nominee. He's out there touting this Quinnipiac poll, showing him at 33% among Hispanics. If you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. That, that ain't holding up. Uh, as far as minority votes in the election, Hillary's going to rely heavily on them. One of the reasons I think Hillary will do well is because the minority vote will, will come out, not at the same rates as, as Obama, but in the same percentages. And she'll do much better with the white vote than Obama ever did. Joy says, hey, Ben, love the show. Why does Donald, your Donald Trump impression sound like Zoolander with a sore throat? Excellent question. <laughs> really excellent. I've been desperately trying to work on my Trump impression. I'll be honest with you. My Trump impression sucks. It's terrible. My Obama, my Obama is not bad at all. My Obama's pretty good. You know, my Chris Matthews sounds not bad. Chris Matthews come out of the show. Right? They have a few that I haven't. John Kerry. In my, my John Kerry impression. Here to serve you, the American people. I have a few in my bag that, that are good. My Trump sucks. So I really need to sit down with just a, a speech of Trump and honest to God, listening through a speech of Trump doing this would be so hard. But I need to kind of stop and start and work with my Trump impression. That's why it's so bad. Okay, Travis writes, Ben, could you refer me to a piece of literature you wrote that best explains every which way the government should stay out of the free market? Thanks. Well, I'm not sure that there's ever like one piece that I wrote about this. Um, I mean, the, the basic idea here is that free markets are, I can do it in almost one sentence, okay? Free markets are voluntary. They're voluntary transactions. Anybody who gets in the way of voluntary transactions is an obstacle to your freedom and happiness. There. That's why government should stay out of free markets. Joseph, Mr. Shapiro, big fan. I wonder if you would consider doing a PragerU lecture series detailing conservative arguments. This would be an excellent member benefit for your website. I would love to do that. We'll, we'll think about how we can make that happen. Um, and uh, as we gain members, I think that we're going to be able to do more of that kind of stuff. So if you're not subscribing, folks, I know there are tens of thousands of people who listen to this show every single day. As we say, we're the number one daily podcast for conservatives in America by the numbers. Subscribe, and then we'll be able to do more of these sorts of things. Brett writes, what do you think of the Rams moving back to LA? I could not care less. I could not care less. Football is a TV sport. I was perfectly, I was perfectly happy watching football on TV. I'm, I've never been to a football game. I don't feel the need to go to a football game. Me spending taxpayer money to bring the Rams back to LA, they couldn't sustain them here the first time. They couldn't sustain them here the second time. So I, I don't see why they'd sustain them here now. Okay, Taylor says, with the government continuing to grow more and more, at what point would you say our government would become tyrannical? Would it become possible at this point for the people to fully implement the Second Amendment, take up arms, start an uprising against the government, actually be successful? Okay, so this is a question. This is maybe the hardest question in American politics. It's, it's almost, an, you don't know it until you see it. I can tell you what my personal breaking point is. My personal breaking point comes when they come to me and they say, we're going to take your kid from you because you refuse to abide by our rules. That's my personal breaking point. I think that's a lot of people's personal breaking point. I think we're now, I think tyranny is gradations. I don't think there's like a hard point where it's tyranny. I think we're already living in a bureaucratic tyranny. The question is what level of tyranny justifies armed resistance? I think if they come to me and they say, you can't worship as you see fit, and we're going to take your kid away from you if you try to do so, that's when I'm coming at you with a gun. Right? That's when I'm coming at you with a gun. And the, and the other alternative being you move. But if they come after Texas, if they come after Idaho, if, they, if, if it becomes there are no places in America that you can even run to, you can't even move, or they restrict your movement, I can't leave California to go there, then, uh, then armed resistance becomes necessary. And I think that the federal government knows that, which is why at a certain point they're going to leave Texas alone because no, nobody wants this bloodbath. Nobody, it's one thing to do this to people in California. It's another thing to go to the people of Texas and say, by the way, we're taking your kids because you're not teaching your five-year-old about transgenderism. And we're going to take your guns too. And people in Texas, they, they, yeah, we've got a bunch of people from Texas in this room, and, uh, and Texas ain't going to stand for that kind of crap. Okay, Chris says, hey, Ben, my question is about my brother. He's a full-blown leftist at this point. That's sad. He talks about cultural appropriation. He hates jokes at the expense of marginalized people, as he calls them. And worst of all, he is a vegan. Okay, so first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make fun of vegans for just a second. I'm going to make fun of vegans for just a second. Um, because they're marginalized people, and I'm going to culturally appropriate by saying that he may be a vegetable. Okay, the point being, how will you raise your kids to instill conservative values in them? You have to give kids a mission in life. It's not just enough to raise them with conservative values. You have to give them a mission, and the mission is, is living out those values in a way that makes the world a better place. What kids are seeking is mission. What everyone is seeking is mission. Everyone wants to know what their place in the world is like. The left gives them mission. It's why people like Bernie Sanders. They feel like they're part of something. Conservatives don't do that. We basically say you're on your own. Go live your own life. That's freedom. 
That's true, but that's not a mission. That's not a mission. Your mission is to promulgate those values among family and friends, to build families that are capable of fighting for those values, to spread those values throughout the world. That's our mission. That's our mission. And if you don't have a mission, you're going to lose your kids. Daniel says, Ben, if you could write and direct a movie, what would it be about and who would you want to act in it? Great question. Great question. So I will say this is kind of a funny answer, but if I, if I could pick one movie that I think would be a successful box office movie, because there are lots of movies that, that you can call, and, and like a movie about something, the movie that I would, that I would do is, um, is a movie about the Ali Frazier fights. The Ali Frazier fight. So the, the, I've talked about this before. I'm, I'm a boxing fan. Ali Frazier is so fascinating because it was such a cultural phenomenon. Joe Frazier was a working class hero, a black working class hero from Philadelphia who wanted to bring races together. Ali was a race baiting nation of Islam radical. And, uh, and Frazier basically got him back into boxing, lobbied so that he could fight him. And then Ali proceeded to ruin Frazier with the black community. Ali proceeded to, to say that he was a sellout, that he was an Uncle Tom. Frazier wasn't a smart guy. He didn't even know what Uncle Tom meant. Ali might not have either, but he was being fed lines by the Nation of Islam, which is a truly evil organization. And he and Ali basically ruins Frazier in the black community. And they fight first time. Frazier knocks him out. Well, doesn't knock him out. Knocks him down and, and wins the decision. They fight a second time. doesn't really matter. Neither one is champion at that point. And they fight a third time. And by this point, Ali is the champion again. And he gives Frazier a fight. And... Frazier, at this point, is blind in one eye. He's blind in one eye. He's old. He doesn't have pretty much anything left. And Ali knows it. And Ali has tons of reach on him. He's a much bigger guy. Ali's like 6'2". I think he's maybe 6'3 or 6'4". Frazier's like 5'10". Right? And he's got a short reach. And he's blind in one eye. And Ali gives him the fight because he thinks that, that Frazier's got nothing. And Frazier... And, and then they go to Manila. There's the thrill in Manila. They go to Manila. And Ali proceeds to call... Joe Frazier, a gorilla. He says, I'm going to fight the gorilla at the Thrillo in Manila, and he's carrying around a little ugly gorilla doll. I mean, this is racist crap, right? And, and he goes after Joe Frazier personally. He says, he's stupid, and he's ugly. I'm smart, and I'm pretty. He's stupid, and he's ugly, and he's a sellout, and he's an Uncle Tom, and he's not a real black man, which, again, is ridiculous because Ali grew up middle class in, in Louisville as Cassius Clay, and Frazier grew up dirt poor in Philadelphia in the ghetto. And, and they have this climactic fight, and Frazier wants to murder him. I mean, wants to kill him in the ring. And they go 14 rounds, and it's a great boxing match. You can watch it. It's a great boxing match. And they get to the end of the 14th round. And Frazier, who, like, Ali had a unique capacity to absorb contact. He, he had a great jaw, and he didn't look cut. Like, even when he got hit a lot, he didn't look beat up. Frazier looks just beaten and broken. But he's, but he's going in there, and he's, he's doing body work on, on Ali, like really hurting him badly. And they go back to their respective corners, and Ali's, and Ali's corner tells, tells him, like, can you handle this? And Ali's like, I'm not sure I can handle this. I may have to throw in the towel. And meanwhile, in the other corner, Frazier is saying, if you throw in the towel, I'll murder you. Like, you don't throw in the towel. And his, and his manager says, Joe, if you go out there, you're going to die. You're literally going to die there out on the camp. On the camp. And he sees someone killed in the ring. You're going to die. Like, you're, you're this close. And, and so he throws in the towel. And Frazier throws in the towel, and Ali wins. But for the rest of his life, for the, that fight basically finishes Ali as a great fighter. Ali's basically done at that point. Frazier is Frazier for the rest of his life is crippled by this feeling of insecurity in the black community that he was once a hero in because of Ali. Ali's now this great hero across America. The villain becomes the hero and the, and the hero becomes forgotten. Right. And and he uh, and he spends the rest of his life bitter and angry about this to the point where they asked Frazier later in his life, you know, about those fights. And he says, you know, Ali won two of the three fights. But if you look at Ali now, who got Parkinson's and, you know, he absorbed so much punishment from Frazier, it crippled him for life. He says, if you look at if you look at Frazier, if you look at Ali now, I won all three fights, right? And he, then the message on his the message on his answering machine till the day he died was, you know, he said, "Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee," which is Ali's thing. He said, "Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee." Butterfly ain't floating no more. So I mean, bitter, bitter, angry man all the way till his death. And Ali never was able to really rectify that, and never could because he could never give back to Frazier what he'd taken from him in his younger days, but was hailed as a hero at the end of his life. And it really is kind of a story. It's sort of a story of America. It's sort of a story of an American tragedy, how tribalism and racialism destroyed our ability to come together, destroyed heroes that we had in favor of people who were divisive, and then elevated those people, how the counterculture became the culture. I think it's a fascinating story. So if I could write and direct a movie, that would be the, the first one on my list that I think would actually do well at, at the box office. Okay, one more. Uh, Nathan says, in light of Trump's implosion and the left's reasserted insanity, what should sound mind and conservatives do? Well, I've already said that one, so we'll, we'll go to Sam. Sam says, hi, Ben. I'm British. I voted for Brexit, 
because of growing corporatism across Europe, something left sees as a result of capitalism when in fact it's, it's, it's antithesis. Why do you think corporatism and corruption has grown so much in America and Europe and what can be done to stop it? The reason corporatism grows is because if you are a big business, you want corporatism. You want people locked out of the market. If you're a small business, then you think the government's going to give you the benefits if you can just get to that point. And so corporatism does really well because those are the people who give donations to the politicians. Those are the people who run all the big businesses that hire everybody. Corporatism is very popular and has been really since the advent of the fascist state. Corporatism was an invention of, of Mussolini. Right? It was, the corporatism is, is a fascist term. Uh, the idea being that the state is a corpus, right? It's a body, and every element of the and every element of the state should be like a limb of the body. And the state will organize how many industries are allowed to succeed, and which industries succeed, and which fail. That's what corporatism is. It's become popular because the people in the industries that are helped, obviously, that's popular among, and everybody else. We don't even notice that the government's doing it until we become the victims of it. So that's why it's become so popular, and always will be popular unless you have principled people standing against it. Okay, so that was a super long episode. But we will be back next week on Monday. And as promised in the Facebook Live session, I won't shave over the weekend. So you're about to see Sexy Beth. Oh, oh, yeah, I know. Everybody's very pumped up. No, nobody's pumped up. But it's okay. We'll be back here on Monday for more because there will be more news breaking, I'm sure, over the weekend. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.